Welcome, everybody. We are glad that you're here. If you're new here tonight, my name is Frank, and I'm the lead pastor of this particular congregation, Redemption Arcadia. And this is called Theology Thursday. Uh, we've already done one on marijuana. That was really well attended. Um, it's just a joke. We had brownies. Um, <laughs> we did. <laughs> Next month, on November 6th, uh, we are going to have Tim Kimmel here. And if you don't know Tim, he's uh, published several books on grace-based parenting, and uh, we're going to be talking specifically to young parents um, about grace-based parenting and their identity in Christ as they parent, because that becomes kind of a, an interesting little issue. And so that's going to be happening in November. Uh, but tonight we're going to talk about the theology of immigration, and I want to introduce our two speakers tonight. There are three chairs up here. One of them won't be used. Apparently people thought I was going to speak. The only thing I'm going to do is introduce our speakers. So... Um, the first is uh, Reverend Steve Johnson, who is the Director of Strategic Initiatives and an Adjunct Professor of Intercultural Studies at Phoenix Seminary. Steve has over 40 years of local and cross-cultural pastoral ministry experience, including having served as a senior pastor of several churches in Arizona, California, Florida, and Argentina, the last two places being Spanish-speaking churches. Obvi- yes, you do speak Spanish quite well. Uh, Most recently, Steve was the president of Latin America Mission, an interdenominational ministry with several hundred Anglo and Hispanic missionaries and partners in 20 countries. Steve is recognized throughout Latin America as a gifted leader, speaker, and trainer. He is currently giving leadership to the development of International Hispanic Studies uh, Center at the Phoenix Seminary, which, by the way, is right across the street from us here. Uh, Steve is an active member of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference as well as the Association for Hispanic Theological Education. He is currently finishing a doctorate on the importance of Latin American integral or holistic mission. Steve and his wife Shelley have been married for 40 years and have four children and seven grandchildren. And uh, Steve and uh, Shelley uh, joyfully attend Redemption Church Arcadia, even though their son Sean recently jumped ship. So many of you know Sean, or, or knew Sean, uh, this is uh, Sean's father, Steve, and he does attend here, and uh, he's been a great friend of the church, and I'm really thrilled that he's here to help us with this. And then uh, we got connected to Ed Clavel through David Massey, one of our um, uh, pastoral residents. You all know Dave, sometimes he does announcements and, and reads um, scripture, and very soon he's going to be preaching his first sermon in November, so you're all going to want to be here uh, for that. So the Reverend Edward Clavel, Doctor of Ministry, is an Associate Professor and Chair of the Business Department at Arizona Christian University. He earned a Bachelor of Business Administration from Baruch College of Business, Master of Divinity and Doctor of Ministry in Leadership from Phoenix Seminary. Dr. Clavel's doctoral dissertation is entitled, A Profile of Latino Evangelical Understanding of Salvation and Sanctification in Maricopa County, Arizona. Dr. Clavel began his professional career as a metal craftsman and entrepreneur in New York City. Upon moving to Arizona, Dr. Clavel continued his entrepreneurial ventures as owner-operator of Jesco Industries and production manager of Heritage Metalworks, and along the way he transitioned into church ministry and academics. His ministry experiences include children's pastor, church plant pastor, and served seven years as the executive and family pastor of a bilingual church in Scottsdale, Arizona. 
Dr. Clavel has served as Dean of Students at Phoenix Seminary, Director of Escuela de Esperanza, Adjunct Professor at Southwestern ACU, Arizona Christian University, and Interim Chair of Biblical Studies of the Biblical Studies Department at Arizona Christian University. Currently serves as a consultant to the South Southwest Church Connection, formerly known as Southwest Conservative Baptist Association, and is a member of National Association of Churches, Business Administrators, and the Christian, uh, 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 Christian Business Faculty uh, Association. In 2011, Dr. Clavel founded Pilgrimage Counseling, coming alongside pastors, business leaders, and organizational leaders to develop strategies and systems needed to reach the vision God has given these leaders and their organization to grow God's kingdom. He also enjoys being a member of an exciting corps of teaching pastors and leading a Spanish service on Sunday school uh, and Sunday school class at First Baptist Church in Tempe. Dr. Clavel and his wife, Sandra, live in Chandler, Arizona. They've been married for more than 35 years. They have two adult sons, Sean and Justin. Sorry. Dr. Clavel is, this is the sad part, Dr. Clavel is a fan of the game of baseball, and his favorite team is the Arizona Diamondbacks. And the New York Mets. So Dr. Clavel needs a lot of prayer. Just wanted to mention that. In addition, he enjoys music, cooking, reading, and spending as much time as he can with his family. And he is better than Steve Johnson. Uh, I, I added that part. <laughs> so anyway, these are our two speakers tonight. Uh, they're going to do a format where they're kind of going to be kind of trading off for about 40 or 45 minutes. And then we're going to open it up for... Um, uh, question. So if you would please welcome Steve and Ed. I love it. I love it. Yeah, but I have an annual passport to Disneyland. <clears throat> oh my goodness. Well, good evening. It's kind of fun to be here on, some, on a time other than a Sunday morning, although I really do enjoy Frank's preaching. Um, it's just it's great to be a part of this church. We, we need to probably move along because we want to give lots of time for questions and, and answers tonight. But um, a couple, I, I, we're going to go back and forth um, on, for about 10 minutes each and present different, si- different perspectives, not sides, but different perspectives on the, on the issue of uh, immigration and how to look at it from a theological perspective. Um, and uh, I, first of all, I just need to let you folks know that um, I was, and so was my daughter Krista sitting over here, we were immigrants in Argentina. So we've, we've gone through the process um, legally, and over the last five years, the last five years as the president of Latin America Mission, I was involved in probably no less than 50 cases of um, immigration between countries in Latin America and the U.S., not strictly the U.S., but sometimes between Ecuador and Costa Rica and Paraguay and and Brazil. So um, I've had a lot of experience on the street with that. And, and all that to say is, um, at the end of the day, I, I'm not sure how much all of that really helps the discussion this evening, other than I think I've been there in the past. Our desire is really tonight to kind of help you develop your own theological framework for forming a stance on, on immigration and, and immigration reform, um, one that respects the dignity of, of individuals, and we'll be talking a little bit about that tonight, one that also respects the, the rule of law and, and our laws here in the country, one that somehow can uh, inter- interact or intersect with uh, the concepts of both economic stability and, and border security. Uh, we're not going to get into those politically. We're going to try to keep 
keep ourselves um, looking at it from a theological perspective. And by that, theology is the study of God. And so we're going to try to look at what God says about particular issues. And first of all, I've got to say this is an absolutely ridiculously complex issue. And, and I've kind of identified what I thought are some, some basic reasons why this is a complex issue. Um, number one, as long as there is sin in this world, which I understand to be until Jesus Christ comes back, there will never be perfect justice. So if we're trying to figure out if there's going to be perfect justice in this and we're going to be able to convince our, our, uh, our congressmen and senators to do what's absolutely right before God and we're going to find something that's going to be absolutely right legally, I don't think it's going to happen because there's just too much sin in the world. And, and in reality, our sin uh, creates for us, for all of us, I would assume, a certain blind hypocrisy. And so as we approach this subject, we have to, we have to recognize that uh, we, have, we have views, we have um, predisposed feelings about these issues, and particularly this issue, that we may not always necessarily be uh, aware of. Um, you hear the phrase, they're breaking the law, and that's why they're Ill- illegal. And that's wrong. I mean, that's, uh, that shows a bias on many a points. But uh, the question is, as you look at that and the concept of being legal versus illegal, um, we have to understand that within the concept of what it means to break the law. And I would venture to say that if not all of us, a great majority of us, have probably broken one law or another in the last 24 hours, whether it's exceeding the speed limit, um, pulling off a rolling California stop at, at Thomas and 44th Street. Um, maybe this year you, you didn't quite claim the right things on your uh, your tax form. And I could go on. It's not yet illegal in Arizona, I don't believe, to text and drive, but it is in most other states. And uh, I know none of you text and drive at the same time. So uh, there, 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 there's the issue, there's just an issue of, of kind of a blind hypocrisy there. Um, you know, we never we never put ourselves in the same category sometimes with with people who are who we think are consistently breaking the law and people who we consider to be illegal, um, it's interesting that our government spends a lot of time and money on today on prosecuting what they call illegal aliens or undocumented workers, and yet they spend little time, energy, and money on prosecuting the employers who are breaking the law by employing undocumented workers. So we have to recognize that there's a ton of hypocrisy in the situation. Um, undocumented, uh, undocumented foreigners, immigrants can get driver's licenses. Many of them pay taxes, um, have social security cards. Whether they got them legally or illegally is really inconsequential at this point. There, many of them are within the system, and 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 are doing things right. When many of us would say that would probably have to admit that there are times when we're trying to beat the system. And uh, and we can say at the same time, and you've you've probably all heard this. I don't know how many of you ever saw the movie A Day Without Mexicans, but it's probably a movie everybody should watch, um, because on the one hand we'll say that uh, that the Ill- illegal immigration system has, is sucking our social security system dry, and they'll throw stats and quotes at you, um, and at the same time not recognize or not be willing to admit that if we were to uh, ship the 15 million uh, illegal, supposed illegal or undocumented workers here in the U.S. 
back to their homes, wherever they may be, our economy would probably collapse. Certainly the agricultural industry would collapse. So we just need to recognize that there's a certain hypocrisy by which uh, we all are viewing this this issue. And it's good to kind of understand where you're at in all of that and, and at least recognize it before you, you you discuss it. I would also say that your position is prob- probably already disposed based on how you came to talk or think about the subject of illegal immigration in the first place. Um, was the first time you heard about it, was it due because somebody was saying they're, they're wrecking the economic system? Was it because they're breaking the law and therefore they're illegal? Is, was, did it happen because of the, you know, what, uh, what happened at the borders and the whole border security issue? Is that how you came into it? Um, or or were you, have you really come into this thinking about, well, I wonder what God thinks about this situation and particularly with regards to the individuals. How does, he, how does, he, how does God think about these people? So wherever you started thinking about the immigration issue, it probably is predisposing you towards a particular stance. And I, and I think it's important for us to recognize that as well. Uh, fourthly, I'd say the terminology is tremendously confusing in the immigration situation and emotionally charged. Um, how many of you have heard the phrase, what don't they understand about illegal aliens? Yeah, I've already talked about the illegal issue. Aliens, really? Um, you know, that's a term that was probably proper back at the turn of the previous century. But certainly we, we, we can't necessarily refer to these people as extraterrestrials. Um, and if we really wanted to push the point, we're aliens. Because Scripture calls us aliens. We're, we're citizens of two worlds. And we're really not of this world. We're another, another world. And First, first Peter 2.11 makes that really clear. And the whole book of Philippians makes it clear. We're citizens of two countries. And so if anybody could be called an alien, it's us who believe in Jesus Christ. So I think we have to keep that, those kinds of things in, in mind. Whenever you heard, hear the term comprehensive immigration reform, nine out of ten people think amnesty. And that is absolutely not true. If you were to read the bills that, be, that are before our Congress and have been passed by the Senate and are now waiting for con- congressional approval, uh, the word amnesty doesn't appear once, nor is there a, a concept of amnesty. So when, when you think about comprehensive immigration reform, we're not talking about amnesty. Our own government is not talking about amnesty. And yet somehow that's, that gets translated that way. So I think it's important to understand uh, the term. And then finally, I think uh, um, we need to understand that when we talk about undocumented immigrants, however you want to call them, uh, we're not primarily talking about refugees, people seeking asylum. The the U.S. government has a pretty uh, in-depth program for those people who are fleeing from South American countries, and there are some on the list where they are, you know, they're subject to some sort of political or um, life-threatening situation. And I've been involved in quite a few cases where we've been able to quickly um, legalize a person's status here in the U.S. based on a refugee or seeking asylum status. We're really talking about people, when we talk about uh, um, undocumented immigrants, we're primarily talking about 
people who of their own volition have determined to come to the United States for one reason or another. So I think it's just really important to understand a lot of, a lot of terms. I think it's also important to understand that this is not the first issue of mass immigration that our country has had to walk through. In the, in the 19th century, there was a mass immigration and a ridiculous problem with the government with the Chinese. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Chinese that flooded our country illegally. And we had to deal with it. At the turn of the previous century, there was mass immigrations of Irish and Italians, many of whom are probably saying, what don't they understand about illegal aliens today? And so we need to understand that this is not a new issue for the United States. It's unfortunate that we haven't quite got it all resolved yet, but this is, this is not uh, uh, a, a, a new issue. Then I would say we need to understand also that we're talking about less than 10% of the Hispanics in the state of Arizona. There's close to, what, 2.3, 2.4 Hispanics in the greater Maricopa and Phoenix area, and less than 10% of those people are undocumented. And so we need to understand that we're not talking about the entire Hispanic population here, Latino population. We're talking about less than, than, than 10%. Um, generally, I would say, as we read through Scripture, getting to the theological point, to get into that, uh, from, a, from a biblical perspective, migrations are throughout Scripture. You'll find migrations from Genesis uh, through Joseph and Mary. You have, you have uh, Joseph and his family of Abraham. You have Moses and the people of Israel. You have Ruth. You have the exiles that went to Babylon as well as Persia. And then Joseph and Mary took Jesus to, to, to Egypt. And that, that was an immigration. So um, we need to recognize that there's a lot that's being taught about, or at least there's a lot recorded about immigration. However, there is no clear biblical teaching on immigration policy. Okay, there is no clear biblical teaching on immigration policy. What scriptures do have is very clear teaching on immigrants. And so we're talking tonight really not about the policy. We're talking about, because we're talking about framework, putting a theological framework upon the issue, we have to recognize that what scripture speaks about are not the policies, but instead the people that are in, in, involved, and that includes us, in the issue of, of, of immigration. And to that, because we're talking about people, we're going to talk about where Scripture starts in referring, uh, in talking about people. And I'm going to turn it over to Ed. Okay, uh, so beginning with, <clears throat> excuse me, with what, is it okay if I stand up? Yeah, sure. Thank you. I just, I'm used to teaching standing up, so. Do you want me to interpret Yes. So when we, we talk about the framework that we want to set up, the first thing that we want to look at is, what is who are we okay, as human beings? Because I think one of the biggest situations or one of the biggest problems that we face in our society more and more is that we begin to say them and us. We have all of these barriers. Um, take myself, for instance. I am Puerto Rican, born in New York City. And... 
as I was growing up, I didn't speak well English. And then, and New York City, there's a lot of different neighborhoods and everything. And so you go into one neighborhood, you don't belong in that neighborhood. You're not Puerto Rican, that's an Italian neighborhood. You go over here, that's, you know, that's not just a German neighborhood. You don't belong. But as I got older, people began to say, you're different. And I would say, what do you mean by that? You're not like other Puerto Ricans. So at that moment, they removed me from the alien population and placed me in their population because I'm different. You're more like us. So we have to begin to say to ourselves, do we do that? Do we see them and us? And we go to the image of God. That's where it all begins, right? That's where we became human beings, in the image of God. And so in looking in the image of God, the the psalmist, he asked the question, what is man that you remember him, the son of man that you look after him? And he's asking God, why do you care about us? And basically it goes to that, that moment when God created us. And he created us in his image. And that's where we need to, that's where we need to begin. When we, whenever we talk about human beings, we need to begin with the image of God. And then, so there's this fourth question that we have to ask. What does it mean that men and women have been created in the image of God? How was the image of God marred, damaged during the fall or because of the fall? And how does salvation rescue that image? What does salvation do to that image? Clean it off, dust it off. So those are the questions we have to ask. And I I look at it that way because the Bible, the the overall arching narrative of the Bible is that God loves us. And that he wants us to love him and to love our fellow human beings. That's the overarching meta-narrative of the Bible. Jesus summed it up. Love God, love your neighbor. So when we look at it, um, so what is it to be in the image of God? Wayne Grudem, you may know him. He teaches right across the street. Uh, He puts it this way. Um, Wayne points to the words used in Genesis 1, 26-27. The image and likeness in Hebrew, he refers to them as something that it's something that is similar, uh, but not identical, okay? It it represents, it's an image that represents. So he would interpret and say, let let us make man, let, let us make man to be like us. Talking about the Trinity, creating man. Like to be like us and to represent us. So we are to represent God. And would God kind of say, we need to ban people from coming here. See, we, we're not, we don't want to talk about the laws. And I, and I, I overstep my boundary there, my rule. I'm not going to talk about the laws. I'm talking about our relationship to each other. Our relationship to people we don't know. In Spanish, we say, como lo tratas? How do you treat him? And people will say, have you treated him? In Spanish, it's, lo ha tratado. Have you treated him? What does that mean? Have you served him? Have you communicated with him, with her? So we look at that, and this is the image of God. They represent God. So the meaning of God, are, there are different meanings, different aspects to the, uh, the image of God. We are spiritual beings. 
We are uh, personal beings. We are moral beings. We are relational beings. Okay? God reveals the relational nature of the Trinity when he says, let us. We teach a class at, at the university, and we talk about what, why is it so important that the Trinity, that we know about the Trinity. And the importance about knowing the Trinity is that we say that God is love. So if God is love, before he created anything, he existed, we know that, who did he love? There was the Trinity. There's a constant love there. And so God transferred that to us. He transferred that in the image. We are to represent him. We are to love who? Our neighbors. We are to love those around us. So we're relational beings. Uh, We are rational beings. We're emotional beings. And sometimes emotions get us in trouble. You see, we skip the rational part and we go to the emotional part real quick. And we think a lot with our emotions. That's the way we're triggered. Now, that's the way, you know, we, what is it, 142 characters? Can you express yourself in 142 characters? Can you make a six-second video? Because nobody's going to pay attention to anything longer than that. Okay, that's the way it works. So our emotions kick in quickly. Rational thinking takes time. It means that I have to step back. I have to look at it. I have to digest it. I have to analyze this video I'm looking at. What are they trying to say? Why are they saying that? Is it true? Is it not true? We have a society that votes on sound clips. You know, verbs. It's 15-second commercial. They're not even 30 seconds because 30 seconds cost too much money and you wouldn't listen for 30 seconds. So 15 seconds. The attention span of, a, of, a, of, a, of an adult is 10 seconds. And we move on. So we are not rational. We're more emotional. We do that. And so we have to think about that. We have to concern ourselves about that. And I think one of the biggest things is um, before I, I had a discussion with our biblical studies department, I said, what, what is it about the image of God? He said, it's creative. The image of God that's implanted in us is a creative image. Because what did God do before he created man? What was his big thing? He was creating. Moses, when Moses pens it, he tells Moses, and Moses talks about God working, God creating. And people say, well, there's emotion, uh, there's, uh, you know, logical. That's what separates us from the animals, we think, and everything. But, you know, my, my dog, if I had a dog, I don't have a dog, but if I had a dog, he could kind of reason it out. I used to have a dog, and they could reason it out. I know that if I go to the table when they're eating, I'll get something. <laughs> and he's patient. She was patient. She'd waited. And I know that if I scratch the door, they'll let me out because I have to go outside. And they showed emotion. When I got home, she would wag her tail. She was happy to see me. But she couldn't create. And so now we look at the image of God within all of us and, you know, put the, the, the lenses down and you look at it and you say, is there creation going on? 
And creation is how they mow the lawn, how they work on the assembly line, how they greet, how I greet, how I find a way to maybe bring a smile, or how I find a way to maybe teach a lesson differently. These are all part of who the image of God is. And so when you look around you and you see people actively working and moving, the image of God is being reflected. And so we have to step back and say, okay, how am I treating someone who has the image of God? And so then, because I know for a fact that if you were to look at someone and say, let me find the image of God. It will move you. It will move you to the point where everything that you, the presuppositions that you had, melt away. They melt away and you say, okay, let me find the image of God in this person. Because when you find the image of God, then what happens is that you begin to feel that you are representing God also, and now you want to love, you want to share, you want to open your doors, you want to speak, communicate, create. So when we begin this conversation, I think it's very important that we begin with the image of God in our minds and then move from there. Thanks, brother. That's, by the way, how we greet each other. Adult males greet each other in Argentina. Um, I'm going to take a few minutes and, and talk about what specifically does Scripture have to say about um, issues or, or people with regards to immigration. And first of all, I'll talk about borders and security. The Scriptures do speak about borders. And I'm going to give you some passages you can write down. You can look at them later because we don't have time to read them all. But in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, Moses is speaking to the people just before he gives up the ghost and says that the, go- the God Most High has fixed the borders for his people. And, so, and, and by borders, that really means the territories of, of land. In Ezekiel 47, 13 through 23, there are specific details about the borders around the promised land, specific territorial markers that say this is where the border begins and and ends. Um, In Numbers 34, it even gets more specific. The first 15 verses of Numbers 34, uh, the scriptures lay out the specific territorial borders of the tribes of Israel. And then from Deuteronomy all the way through Proverbs, the same phrase appears several times. I found it at least four times where we are told, the people of Israel are told, not to touch the landmarkers that mark the territories of the borders of either the, of the property of the, the nation of Israel or their neighbors. And so there is a sense in which borders are, are very prominent in the, in the history of Israel. I'm not sure how secure they were. Um, I didn't think, I'm not sure they had spears and whatever else at, at every, uh, every territorial marker. But clearly in, in the Old Testament, there was a sense in order to cross from one territory into another and cross a border, there was at some point in time uh, a place, a location, wherein an individual who was not a native of that territory had to check in with somebody. And we'll see that in a minute. 
The, the second thing I would say, there's different terms that appear to parallel our current situation with regard to immigrants. In the Old Testament, there are four words for a foreigner or a sojourner or a stranger or an alien. Um, and unfortunately, in the English, they're kind of used interchangeably depending on your translation. Uh, the one word can translate all four Hebrew words, and that's really not the best way to look at it. So there's four Old Testament words. The most prominent word is just G-E-R, ger. It's used over 160 times in the Old Testament, and it refers to a legal immigrant, an individual who is from another country, not just in Israel, but in Egypt as well, someone who is a resident, essentially a resident alien, someone who is from another country who is in their, their immigrated country legally. They have asked, secured, and got permission. In, in, the, in the nation of Israel, those who were gares were people who, because they were there legally, they got permission, they were essentially treated like natives, like Hebrews. They, they, were, they, were, considered, they were considered to have all the legal rights and civil rights as a, as a citizen of, of, of Israel. They had all the benefits and, quote, social services that would come to a, a member of any of the tribes of Israel. And during the Passover, they were even, if they were circumcised, because they had to live within the laws of the country to which they emigrated, to Israel, they were given religious inclusion rights, which means they could partake in the worship and at the same time even eat of the Passover dinner. In your ESV, if you guys, I think we use the ESV as the text here at, at, at Redemption, the, the ESV does the best job of separating the terms. This is the term sojourner when you see it in English. Then there's, there's uh, two terms to refer to the foreigner as it, uh, as, as it appears in the ESV, and that is Zar, Z-A-R, and he's not the enemy of um, the guy in Toy Story, um, Buzz Lightyear. Uh, Zar and Nekar, N-E-K-H-A-R, just so you know it. These are foreigners. These are people who have wandered across the borders. They have no permission to live in the country, officially. And as a result, they have no rights as a citizen. They have no rights to the social service system of Israel. And they have no rights to enter the temple, even the outer court. Um, and uh, the, the, the scriptures speak really specifically about them. We see in, in, in uh, different places there's, there's, lots of, uh, there's lots of differences, specific differences made. good example of a sojourner would, would be Joseph and his family in Genesis. Joseph actually um, asked for permission to move his family into Egypt, and Pharaoh gave him permission to do so in, uh, in Genesis 47. Um, and uh, he, was, he was able to, to live there as essentially a citizen. In fact, Pharaoh gave him, as you know, a plot of land. Um, at, at the same time, uh, we see that for the foreigners, they were, they were excluded. They didn't get the same benefits. And in Exodus chapter 12, where it talks about the Passover, it clearly states that the sojourner could participate, but the foreigner could not. 
Uh, you all know about the uh, the law of jubilee at the the end of seven years, and if you had if you owed people money at the end of seven years, they had to release you from the debt. Uh, a gear would have to be released from debt because they were treated like a native of Israel. However, uh, a debtor could exact still after seven years the debt from a, a czar or a nakar, a foreigner. So clearly, there's a there, is, there are distinctions there that somewhat parallel our, uh, our system today, our understanding today. I think we have to be careful to rigidly construct an immigration policy based on these texts. But at least you can see that this is not an issue that cre- was created in 21st century United States. This is something that's been going on for a long time. And even though there are s- distinctions, I think you now have to theologically take a deeper, st- a, a bigger step um, to look at the o- Old Testament and New Testament from a, from a much larger perspective. And that is, you need to recognize that in whatever case as a sojourner or as a foreigner, most of these people were tremendously oppressed, even when they were living in Israel or in Egypt. And certainly we can see the people of Israel being oppressed in, in, in Egypt. And we have to understand that the scriptures repeatedly show us that God has a deep concern for those people who are vulnerable, for those people who are disenfranchised, for those people who are needy, and even for those who are running from, from the law. Uh, if, if, I were, if you were to peg me, because we don't have a ton of time, if you were to peg me to say, what's, what's the most critical verse in Scripture that talks about that? I would take you to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Um, where the people of Israel set up idols in all the hills and whatever else. God calls the people of Israel to court and says, you guys have really blown it, and the mountains are going to be my, my, my witnesses against you and what you're doing. And in verse 8, he makes an interesting call. Um, and he, he says, you know, what is it that, oh man, what is it that God requires of you? And and when he says, oh man, that's a generic call, not just to the people of Israel, but to all mankind. It's used twice in the Old Testament, and it's referring to everyone. So I include us in that. Um, You may disagree, but I would do it. He says, what does God require of you? What he's told you what is good. And that is to do justice, love loving kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Well, walk humbly with your God, I think we can figure out what that means. What does it mean to do justice? And here's where the terms get confusing again. Because when you and I think about justice, we think about legal justice. Justice means, ultimate justice in this situation would be finding some sort of path to legalization for the, 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 the undocumented immigrants on the one side or closing the borders and shipping them all back on the other side. But the word in, 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 in Hebrew for justice does not refer to legal justice. It's the word mishfat. There's two words for, for righteousness or justice in the Old Testament. One is personal justice or righteousness, which is tzedakah in the, in, the, in the original language. And that speaks about being right yourself with God. This word justice, do justice, mishfat, is, literally means actively find ways to help the people that live around you get in a right relationship with God. So when the prophet Micah, through the Spirit of God, calls the people of God to do justice, he's calling them to make sure that the people they live around and with are getting people right with God, in essence. That's what it means to do justice. And then love, loving kindness. 
loving kindness, which is, which is mercy, translated mercy in a lot of, of situations. And the expression of mercy is compassion. We see that in Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. And he doesn't just say, do it. He says, love it. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In, in the righteousness aspect of it. And that righteousness is the, the in the, in the I, I'm going to get too involved in this, but that righteousness is, is in, the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the same word that we find in Micah chapter 6, verse, or verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 8. And, and love, loving kindness, compassion, and walk humbly with your God. So when we, when we look at this issue, we have to recognize that justice doesn't necessarily mean that we're looking for a legal resolution as believers. If you're going to look at it from a theological perspective, the first things that should be on our mind is, are we sure that we're doing everything to help the people that live around us, including those who may be breaking our law? Are we doing everything we can do to make sure that they're living in a right relationship with God? Am I doing everything that I can possibly do? Do I love meeting people's needs? Loving kindness, compassion, doing whatever I can do. Love is an act of my will to secure your best needs and interests regardless of the cost. Am I doing that through, through acts of, of compassion? So if, if, uh, is, it, is it wrong to harbor an undocumented worker? Is it, you know, is it wrong to, to, to not turn them in? I'll, I'll let you decide on the basis of how you, how you understand the scriptures. But that does bring up an interesting point. Where in the world does the law fit on all of this? How do we, how do we manage, uh, work our way through the, the understandings of our legal system and our relationship to honor the law? Ed? Yes. The biggest question I always get asked in these is Romans 13. That's where we land. Romans 13. Hey, it's the law. Follow the law. God put the law in place, right? Quick survey of... I know you're going through Romans, but a quick survey of Romans. We did Romans 13 Sunday. I, we'll get there. <laughs> Chapter 1. All right, first of all, Romans um, is, written by, is written by Paul, and he's writing to address a problem. As far as I see it, he's addressing a problem. There's a problem in the Church of Rome. See, when Claudius was there, Acts 18, he expelled all the Jews. Now, the Jews were the one that founded the church from Pentecost. They came over, they founded the church. Here it is. Claudius says, "Not. Nah, it's time for you to go. I want you around. This this Christie thing guy is causing problems. So go." So they leave. Um, Nero comes in around Corinthians, First Corinthians, somewhere along that, and he says, "You can come back." He didn't literally say that, but he said, you know, it's kind of like, we're not going to enforce the law. They could come back if they want. Sounds familiar? So they come back. And they come back, and they are, we started this church. We want this church. We're in charge. And so Paul begins in chapter 1. He says, he talks about the Gentiles and how depraved they are and how, you know, how God has turned them over and everything. But then he says, and to you, old man, He's talking to the Jews now. 
You guys are just the same as they are. So he talks about them, and he's, and he's, putting, he's beginning to equate them. They're arguing with each other. Now he's trying to bring them together. I look at Romans as Paul's way of bringing this church together, this group of people together. So he talks about their depravity. So chapters 3, 4, and 5, he's talking about the justification through, through Abraham. Um, he talks about being united in Adam. Uh, chapters 6 through 8, he's talking about salvation. And then chapter 11, he talks about the grafting. Now he has walked them through. He has brought them through. He's talked about how you know, they are saved, how it's through faith and everything. And now he's saying, you are united. Even though you Jews who are immigrating back and the Gentiles don't want you there because they have laid claim to this church. Now he's grafting you back. God is grafting you. And some of you are being lost because of your unbelief. Yeah, I understand that. And so then that takes us into chapter 12. And in my mind, you cannot separate 12 from 13. And you cannot get to 13 without going through 12. And chapter 12 talks about what? He's talking about, I appear for you, I, I appear, appeal to you, bro, therefore, brothers. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. For what reasons are we, accept, are we presenting our bodies? Do not be conformed to the ways of this world. But transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the testing that you may discern what is God's, what is the will of God. I always look at it and I say, what is the greatest commandment? Love God, love your neighbor. That's his will for me. I have a God that demands that I be morally perfect, even though I know I'll never be there. But he wants me to pursue his moral law, his code, his way. Love him, love my neighbor. And that's where Romans 12 begins. Okay? Um, We've been, we've been forgiven, and it walks through, and it tells us, bless those who persecute you, uh, verse 14. Even before that, verse 9, love, let love be genuine, okay? Don't like evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another in brotherly affection. So if we're looking at someone with the image of God, he is welcomed into or maybe he's not welcome, but he has migrated into our civilization, our part of town, our part of the world. And we're looking for the image of God. God is saying, love them. Now, wait a minute. Before you do that, um, check to see that they have a passport. Make sure they cross the border properly. Um, do they have a social security card? No. Just love them. Okay, And I know, and I'm getting there. I'm getting to 13. So he says, uh, 14, bless those who persecute you, bless, uh, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the, associate with the lowly. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. Is it honorable? to despise someone just because of who they are? Is it loving 
to not speak to someone because of the way they look? Because of the shield or the, the lens we put before our eyes and we say, they look like. Beloved, never, uh, never avenge yourselves. That's to God. And then it says, let every person, going into 13, we're there now, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. But it talks about being loved, and we do have authorities. Yes. I'm not talking about not respecting the law, but respecting the law within the confines of God's love. Who is he who heals on the Sabbath? Who was that man? How dare you heal someone on a Sabbath? You're breaking the law. Is it not more that Jesus says, is it not more that I heal on a Sabbath? Is it not more important that I do my, God's, my Father's work? Who was it that touched that leper who came to him? traveled through the crowds. I mean, a leper traveled through the crowd to get to Jesus because he wanted to be healed. A leper who was probably spat upon, who was probably thrown rocks upon, who was told, get away from us because it was illegal for him to even be where the crowd was. He fought his way, came to, and Jesus, he said, Jesus, if you want, you can heal me. And Jesus said, yes. As a matter of fact, my brother, everybody see this? You're healed. Sometimes we have to put the law aside, not disrespect in our, but for the love of God, we treat people godly. I'm more afraid of what God's going to say to me than what the Lord will say to me or someone will say to me. No, can't do that. So, yes. Romans 13, yes, respect authority, be subject. Authority, um, it says here, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist that have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists God. A lot of people tell me that. Let me ask you a question. The authorities that be are allowing what's happening. We're saying they're wrong. But aren't they the authorities God is allowed to be in place right now? That's a tough one. We're saying they're not enforcing the laws. But my recollection says they were voted in. Legally. As no one's taking anybody to jail for breaking a law, then it must not be broken that bad. The violation must not be that serious. It's a good question. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm not. It's for you to decide. But if I'm looking at it from the image of God and what God tells me in chapter 12, what I'm supposed to do, and then follow it up in 14, he follows it up with more love. 
13 is in the middle, kind of holding it together. But I think God's rule is greater than all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just make a couple statements and more over questions. I think um, it's important for us to recognize in this situation, especially when it comes to respecting the law, that um, we we have the ability to impact and change laws in in our in our country. And I think whatever your stance is or will be um, with regards to borders and, and past legalization and all of that, th- those, those individual issues, I would suggest that, number one, you recognize that you have a role to play. And even though you think you're one individual, you may be one, you may be one vote that might make a difference. Um, and that you do it from a, from a theological framework more than maybe the other frameworks uh, number two, as he said, we do have a we do have a biblical call to love all people, and that includes even those who are here in our country illegally. Um, number three, read the bills. Um, if you've not read SB 1070, you need to read it. You need to Google it, and you need to read it, because um, as I said earlier, it isn't about it isn't about amnesty. It's about it's about reform, and it's been passed overwhelmingly in the Senate. And it's laying on the on Speaker Boehner's desk right now. Um, not that I'm for it or against it, but at least it's important for you to be to to read the bills and understand what's what's being said, and take it out of the role of emotion and put it in the role of what is what is really going on, what's what's really before us in in making a decision. And when you hear our candidates for governor speak um, on the issue. Uh, get beyond the, the, the political speak. Don't let the media inform your opinion or your position on, on, on immigration reform or immigration policy. Uh, so other than that, let's go ahead and take questions. I'm sure we've had some come up. Okay. He's putting the law aside in this case, an example of obeying God rather than men like an axe. What do you think, Ed? What's that? Is putting the law side uh, in this case an example of obeying God rather than men? Yeah. To a certain degree, yes. I, you have to understand, I am for the law. It, it, without the rule of law, it, it doesn't exist. I'm an economist at heart. And without the rule of law, economy doesn't work. You've got to have it. It's a matter of, is this law treating our fellow human beings properly? Um, like Steve said, know what the laws are. You know, how many, how many immigrants are allowed to come into this country from different countries? Do you know that number? Because there is a number. Somewhere along the vicinity of like 20,000 per country. But nobody wants to come here from Scandinavia. But they get 20,000. Nobody wants to come here from some other country, but they get 20000 The people that want to come here, that you get 50000 they only get 20000 So it's knowing the laws, knowing what's in play, and understanding that the system is broke. And that's why I look at it. And the bill that Steve's talking about, it's a good way of going. Is it perfect? No, but it's a good step forward. The last time we addressed this issue was back in... 
68, I think it was, or 78, something like 86, something, no, the 86 Mets, the Mets won in 86, that's why, hold on. Um, but um, that's why that number stays with me. Um, but it's, it's been a while, and people say, well, why don't do it legally, go to the back of the line? It takes 20 years to process someone to get in here properly, close to 20 years. From Mexico. From Mexico, yeah. That's a long time. I would answer that question by saying yes, but be prepared for the consequences. Paul had to pay the consequences for setting aside the law to obey God. And, and I think whenever you take the law into your own hands, you set it aside, you suffer the consequences. You speed, you got a ticket, traffic court. Well, I, I would say that um, if you're, an, for instance, if you're an employer, it's, it's technically against the law to hire an undocumented worker. So if you're going to take that person into your employment, be prepared to pay the consequences, even though chances are slim they're going to come after you. Um, if uh, there, there are many churches that will actually set up sanctuary for, for immigrant worker, workers or Im, undocumented uh, immigrants who have been targeted by ICE to be deported, and they'll set up shop in, inside of the churches, and churches have taken stands that says, you can't come and get them out of our church. Um, whether they're using proper biblical you know, uh, uh, precedents for that or not, I'm not going to speak to because I don't think they are. But nevertheless, these people are basically saying, we are not going to allow you to... to uh, to fulfill the law by deporting these people back, because technically they should be deported. The law is clear. If you enter this country illegally, and, it is, and it's determined that you've entered this country illegally, your, your option is to be deported. That's your option. So... <laughs> you have to answer that question. Certainly racism is involved. Certainly it's involved. I'm married to an African-American woman. My sons are darker than I am. My youngest son, he's 27. He carries his passport with him at all times. Why? He carries his passport with him at all times. He says, I just don't want to deal with it, Dad. I just don't want to deal with it. They stop me. I just show him my passport. That's the first thing I show. My son-in-law's name is Benito Rodriguez Beltran, Jr., second-generation northern Mexican. He is consistently concerned about being stopped and asked for his identification. And he was born here. So there is racism. And, and let's be honest, Arizona is one of, if not the worst, the worst when it comes to, to targeting um, to targeting individuals and groups of people based on their, their racial background. And I've, I've suffered that, by the way. When I lived in Argentina, it was in the midst of the highest anti-North American um, uh, uh, you know, racial um, furor in probably the last 60, 70 years. And consistently would hear as I'd get on the train or walk down the street, Yankee go home. Yankee go home. And, uh, you know, 
if you've never been in that situation, you don't know what, what kind of a situation that puts you in fear. And, and again, for many of us, it, it can be blind. Uh, you know, I, I won't even say that the racism is, is purposeful racism. Sometimes it's just the way we were raised um, and, the, and the cultural context in which we, we grew up. Yeah. Oh, another one? Then we'll come here. <laughs> Why do people want to come from Mexico so much? Because there's virtually uh, no economic system that allows for, for uh, jobs or for an individual to really make a living on their own unless they're basically selling in the streets, unless you're part of the privileged class. Um, they they are they are they are suffering an economic depression that that almost rivals ours in the in the in the earlier part of the century. And and the flip side of that, or the, along with that, is that we have a demand for labor. There's just supply and demand. We have a demand for labor. Um, two years ago, when unemployment was about twelve percent. And Arizona is probably around that much. And nationwide, it's close, 11, between 11 and 12 percent. There were 500,000 agricultural jobs available in California. 500,000 agricultural jobs were available in California. Unemployment was at 12 percent. They're taking our jobs. There's 500,000 jobs. Go get one. <laughs> There's a demand. And, and it's, it's been a secular thing. Since the 30s, when World War I, we soldiers went overseas, we asked Mexicans to come and work. When our soldiers came back, we told them to go back home. World War II, the same thing. We needed workers. We, we, we told them, come on, we need you. Uh, when our soldiers came back, we said, okay, now it's time for you to go home. So it, it, it's been that we have traditionally throughout the centuries um, have said, yes, come, we need workers. Okay, it's time to retire. And it's one of those times where we need workers. And, and that, and, but now we are, we're kind of, I don't know where we're at. You know, we're, unemployment is high, but we don't want more workers, but we want more workers. Watch a day without Mexicans. How can we practically reach out to our Hispanic neighbors? Wow. Well, I'll tell you the one way not to do it from a church perspective, is decide you're going to set up a, a Hispanic service and keep all the Hispanics in one service and all the Anglos in another service. Why not? <laughs> uh, you know, you just, I mean, from my perspective, the biblical, the biblical command to love is, is really clear. And you'd start a relationship with a Hispanic individual in the same way that you would start a relationship with any other one of your neighbors. There are some keys, though, that could really help you. Number one, the Hispanic uh, community is much more family-oriented than we are. You know the neat thing about this church, and Frank said it last Sunday, I think it was, we, we grew like 15% in the adult congregation and 40% in the in the kids the kids ministry. There's a lot of young families in in this church, and um, getting together as families is a great way to start. If you have Hispanics in your neighborhood, invite them over for for a barbecue. Oh, by the way, Hispanics love barbecues. 
um, just like we do. I mean, there's, it's crazy to think that there's a, a division there. Um, but there's no way to treat them differently. Just reach out to, to folks. Recognize that you may have problems in, in communicating from time to time. Um, but that's a part of living together in the same, the same community. That's a part of, of loving them. And you have to understand, um, probably the, the best, the easiest way, it's a philosophy that we're practicing at First Baptist, is if you do have a Spanish service, okay, that's fine. But have it that it coincides with your regular services. Um, because within one generation, they're just going to be part of your congregation. See, the average... Uh, Latino that's born in the United States, they speak Spanish till about the age of about six. The moment they enter the school systems, by age eight, their dominant language is English. So by 12, they don't want to go to Spanish church anymore. And if they're plugged into your children's ministry or your youth group, um, they keep coming. And those are your future leaders. That's your future church right there. You know, so you, you have to have long-range vision because the Spanish church is, is a one-generation church. Yeah, and according to the 2010 census, 75% of the Hispanic population in the state of Arizona is under the age of 35 years old. So chances are they're probably all English-speaking in some form or another. So this isn't like, you know, huge dividing wall here. Yeah. Does asking them for a passport necessarily mean that we aren't loving them? When and where are you asking? <laughs> I had to carry my passport at all times in Argentina. And I was asked for it, and in Mexico, and was asked for it all the time. And in Costa Rica, and in Honduras, and in El Salvador, in Ecuador, in Peru, in Bolivia in every single one of the 20 countries that I've traveled over the last five years on numerous occasions, in not one of those countries was I able to walk around without having my passport with me in case I was stopped and was asked for the, the visa. Of course, I stuck out like a sore thumb in most of those countries. Yeah. I would have paid the consequences. Well, in, depending on the country, I would have ended up for a pretty long time in somebody's, um, somebody's uh, police to, station's office waiting for the government to try to figure out what to do with me. I, I don't consider it prejudice. Well, number one, I can't answer for the media, but but I would say that the the problem in Arizona, particularly in Arizona, was that um, there was there was definitely an issue of racial profiling, targeting individuals, um, and being with with the ability with the under the supposed ability for police to stop anybody for any reason if they thought they were illegal. And and so it was a it was a targeted effort to identify and then therefore deport illegals. But but I stuck out. 
But I never, I never had a, police, a policeman pull me over and say, let me see your documentation. You know, now in Argentina, when we'd travel from the north to the south, we'd go three or four through three or four provinces and we would be stopped at those, you know, at, at different checkpoints. But everybody went through the same process. See, the thing we have to understand is also in most of those South American countries, including Mexico, a Mexican can't travel without their identification. We have a lot of freedom as North American citizens that all we got to have to carry around most of the time is a driver's license because that's a major form of, of identification. That doesn't work in most other countries. So, um, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I, I, wouldn't, I would say that I would answer that question by saying, no, it doesn't necessarily mean we're not loving them. You know, you can only, you can only assume what's, in the, what's the intention and the motivation of the person who's stopping and asking for the passport. In my mind. Yeah. Well, you qualified, you qualified your statement by saying close to the border. And if you're asking me personally, I'd shut down the border as quickly as I could. I, I think the border, the issue of an open border is, is, a, is asking for disaster in, in our country. And actually, I think most Latinos would support stronger border because most Latinos are legal. And, and if you're talking about asking for papers for someone who's at Sonoita, or Nogales, or Ciudad Juarez, or in El Paso, um, or Calexico, or, or you know Chula Vista, California. That's one thing. Pulling pulling someone over at 44th Street and Thomas is another issue in my mind. So I, I would I would personally say because there isn't a country in the Western Hemisphere that has open borders like we do, um, unless they are they're open because of geography. 
The border between Guatemala and Mexico is an open border. It's an open border because the mountains and the jungle that separate those two countries is absolutely ridiculously hard to to cross. And really, honestly, getting across the U.S. border is much easier than getting from Guatemala to Mexico. And and so I would I would say to you, um, we we need to separate between that which is, you know looking at what's coming across the border in border, border cities and the, the 50 million or the 35 million legal Hispanics in, in the U.S. that are here and were born here and are either citizens or legal. We also have to recognize that profiling, um, to be consistent, we'd have to do the same for the, the Chinese that are here illegally, the Russians that are here illegally, and you could go on and on and on and on and on. It's just that because of the sheer number of Hispanics in the Southwest, it's become the primary issue. I imagine that there's probably a good portion of Somalis and Kenyans and Ethiopians in Phoenix who are not here legally. And... You know, I'm not sure that we're, we've we've put together a policy to pull it, pull them over and ask for their their paperwork. You know, unless there's a, a reason to do so. So I would say, yeah, for the border, I'm I'm all for closing the border, and I think most Latinos in the state would be for closing the border. Um, but that's a separate issue from a path to legalization. It, it, it all deals with, uh, if you know anything about software, and you have, and, and somebody builds a software program, and they put it up there, and they put it online, and we got a bug. All right, put a patch on there. Put a patch on there. Put a patch on there. Put another patch on there. Download the patch. Download another patch. All right, here's the update. That's what the immigration law has been throughout the years. It's been a patch on a patch on a patch on a patch on a patch. And speaking into those patches are interest groups um, that don't want this type of uh, unskilled labor to come into the country. Why? Because we have this, these jobs that we want to protect. And we have jobs over here we want to protect. And so that's why it gets so complicated. And we also have a government that likes to have forms. They like papers. They like forms. You know, it's like fill this form out, then fill this form out. And it used to be triplet, you know. So you fill three of those, four of those, five of these, six of those. And now you do it on the Internet. And, and, it, and it goes somewhere. And, and you wait. It's just a lot of bureaucrats. It's also an interdepartmental issue. You know, the, the U.S. has tried to, in the last couple of years, consolidate it all in what's called ICE, I-C-E, but that's the old Homeland Security and Border Patrol and, and whatever else. But really, honestly, it's been a political football for, for 40 years, and every administration has brought its own take to the situation, and there's never been comprehensive reform. That's why they're talking about using the term comprehensive reform, because people are wanting to see a simplification of, of the process. It's also because the United States is much more generous than immigration policy than all the other countries in the world. In terms of quantity, that's true. In, in, in terms of percentage, I'm not sure that's true. 
terms of percentage of population. We're gonna, but we're going to shut it down here because we're respecting uh, everybody's time. It's about two minutes till eight. I want to thank you guys for being here. Let's can we thank uh, Ed and Steve for coming and doing this as well. Uh, let me pray for you guys and uh, pray for all of you, and we will be dismissed tonight. Thanks for coming again. God, we are thankful for uh, Steve and Ed for coming tonight and sharing and stirring us up and uh, getting us to think about things. I just pray that you would, uh, again, uh, point us back to your son in the beginning of, uh, of us uh, encountering this and thinking about it. So help us to start there. Um, help us to understand the why of, of uh, uh, our feelings about things. Help us to, um, to know that if we have convictions, that we should be able to answer why we have those convictions and that they should really start with you uh, and not with uh, us or how we were raised or uh, a soundbite or um, what somebody else has told us. So help us to uh, go back to your word and go back to your son to be able to figure out the theology of, of not only this issue but everyone. Uh, again, thanks for uh, bringing us together tonight. Uh, I pray that you continue to bless us and that you would be glorified. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.